and Cornerstone people, I'm happy to tell you that, uh, well, I have a little announcement to make, and I'm happy to tell you what's in the announcement. So they've asked me to tell you that, remember, uh, a week or so ago, we asked you to indicate to us whether we were interested in a church, as a church, and having um, American Heritage Girls here. It's in Hartford County, but the church that's hosting it can no longer host it. They need a new church to take responsibility for it. So we looked into that. We asked you all, are you interested? We need this, we need that. And you all overwhelmingly responded with saying, yes, we'll do that, we'll do that, we'd like the other, and so on. So Lord willing, stay tuned. We ought to soon have American Heritage Girls here at Cornerstone. So that's a wonderful ministry. I'm very thankful for that. It's to help us raise daughters in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All right, we're coming to the book of Deuteronomy now for our sermon. We're in chapter one still. I'm gonna to read to you a little bit from chapters one and two and seven, because these are some conquest passages. These are go in and take the land passages. So Deuteronomy chapter one and verse eight. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Deuteronomy 2, 32 to 35. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. This is God's word. And now having confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way, Hebrews 10:19. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this blessing, this joy, this grace of life you've given us today, that we are able to gather ourselves and enter into your holy presence. We come to you to worship you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We pray that this may be a day of grace and a day of salvation. May sinners in this room, may sinners who hear this message, may they believe on the Lord Jesus and find the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life through his name. And may your people be sanctified, strengthened, built up in the most holy faith. May our feet be planted more firmly on that narrow way that leads to everlasting life. We ask for all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the scriptures we just read were scriptures about Israel's conquest of Canaan land. As you saw, God told them to go in, take the land, and basically, if I may paraphrase it, kill everybody, take everything. So what do you think of that? 
There are critics of the Bible who struggle with that, who see that as being immoral, unethical, evil. How can you Christians believe such a thing? How can you follow such a God? How can you cling to such a Bible, such an Old Testament? In fact, so let me put it up as my first main point today. Here it is. Critics of the Bible strenuously object to Israel's wars of conquest. One scholar wrote, quote, the reality is that this topic, the wars of conquest, is perhaps one of the most difficult issues in the Bible to understand, justify, and digest. One of the most difficult. Another writes, quote, God's commands for the Israelites to wage war against the Canaanites present one of the most difficult ethical questions for Christians who believe that the scriptures are the revealed word of God. Many honest observers have wondered how the God who loved the world by sending his son to die for us could also have commanded violence against an entire population of people. So go the criticisms of the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. He's the same God as the New Testament, by the way, just giving you a hint. And so, so go the criticisms against the conquests of Israel. Actually, the outright critics of the Bible say two things, and it's kind of funny that they say these two things. First, they say the, the conquest never really even happened. Didn't even, it's not even true. It's false. It's not history. It didn't even happen. And then they say, secondly, but it was evil. It didn't happen, but it was evil. Wait a minute. There's some incongruity that I sense right there. But they go on to say, how awful, how immoral, what kind of God? Critics of the Bible, again, strenuously object to Israel's wars of conquest. They're immoral. They're horrific. They're unethical. What kind of God and what kind of people and what kind of Bible? So what do we say to that? That's kind of what this sermon is about today. Scratch kind of. That is what this sermon is about today. Yes, we're doing apologetics again. We're defending the faith again. We were doing that last week in 1-1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And the critics say, no, they aren't. The Bible's wrong, and that's a lie. We were doing apologetics, defending that last week. This is the word of God. These are the words that Moses spoke. And we just happen to be doing apologetics again today in 1-8. The Lord our God said, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take it. I don't want you to get the impression we're going to be doing apologetics all the way through Deuteronomy. It just happens there are two things that call for it right here up front in chapter 1. So where do we start in defending the God of the Bible, in defending Israel and their conquest of Canaan land? Where do we start so that what some people say is inethical and wrong, unethical and wrong, is actually ethical and right. Where do we start? Let's start here. Next slide. God promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. So that's a good place for us to start. How do we make sense of this? Is this ethical? Is this right or is it not? Here's the starting place. Here's where all the thing about the land began. God promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. He promised Abraham land and seed and blessing. I'll make you a blessing to all nations. Let's read a few of the passages. We'll start with Genesis 12 verses 1 and 2. Here's where God promised the land to, to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There's the start of the Abrahamic covenant. There's the start of God's promise to Abraham that they would have the land. He and his people would have that land. Genesis 12, verse 7. Abraham's out wandering. He's a sojourner. He's a pilgrim. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The land, I will give you this land. Next, Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Just imagine that. So Debbie and I live in a townhouse. We have a postage stamp sized front yard. You could probably mow the lawn with a pair of scissors in about 10 minutes, not that I'm gonna try that. I pay good HOA money and those guys come and mow the lawn with big machines. I like it that way. Paid my dues mowing lawns, but now I'm getting too, too much on that. So the thing of it is here, how would you like it if God appeared to you and spoke to you and said, look as far as you can see in all directions, I'm giving it all to you, plus seed like the stars of the heavens, like the sand on the seashore, like nobody can count, and I'll make you a blessing to every nation on the earth, and kings shall come from you. Like, I'd be like, you talking to me? But God did this to Abraham. And he said, I give you this land, the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. The offspring in the New Testament turn out to be those who are the faithful to the Lord God, the true believers, and in the new covenant, believers in the revelation of, in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. One more Genesis 17, 8, one more promise that God gave to Abraham about the land, Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be there, your offspring, and I will be there, God. So, those are different iterations of God's covenant that he made with Abraham. And he told Abraham, Abraham, I'm giving you the land. Look at all the land. I'm giving you that land. Now we're in Deuteronomy. It's many years later. And the people are ready to go in and take the land. And God says to them again, Deuteronomy 1.8, See, I have set the land before you, that land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. So now it is time to take possession of the land. But, but why? Why all this about the land? What's the big deal about the land? Why does anybody care about the land? Why is it important that God would give Abraham that land? Why is this a big thing in the Bible? Well, there could be many reasons, but I'm going to boil it down to the two that I think are most important. One is because it was time, God had decided it was time to remove those evil people because of their abominations and because of their evil to remove them out of that land. 
We're going to see more about that as this sermon goes on. That's one reason why it was now time for God to give these people that land. He's like, I'm done with those people. I want them out of the land. I'm doing some cleaning up on my planet, and I want them off my planet and in my holy presence, and it's judgment day for them. That's one reason why that's one purpose for Israel in the land. That's a slide. One purpose for Israel, the purpose for Israel in the land. Sorry, slide man. Thank, didn't give you the crew, the cue. You're doing great. But here's another reason, and this one's the great reason. Ultimately, the whole thing about the land is God was preparing a people in a land to whom Messiah would come, where the Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would be born of a virgin Mary, where he would walk and minister and teach, and a people who were supposed to have been prepared and led by their leaders to flock to their Messiah and then to proclaim him to the nations that all nations may be blessed in him. This whole thing about the land is about Jesus Christ born there, raised there, ministered there, died on the cross for our sins there, rose on the third day, appeared for 40 days, ascended to the right hand of the Father from that land. So the big picture here, the, the meta-narrative, if you want the hoity-toity terms, is this, this land is about Jesus Christ. It's about redemption. That's where this fits into the whole story of the Bible. So that's the purpose for Israel in the land. That's why God wants Israel in the land. Let's get those people out. I'm done with them. Let's get these people in. I'm sending Christ through them. But now we're going to come specifically to, next slide, the ethics of Israel's wars of conquest. And we're asking, was, was it right? I mean, these Israelis, they went in there and killed everybody and took all their stuff, lived in those people's houses, which they did not build, ate from those people's trees, which they did not plant, drank from those people's cisterns, which they did not dig. Is that right? We're going to go in and knock them out, take their land, live in their houses, eat from their trees. Or was this unethical or immoral? To state the problem again, I'm sure you get it, but anyway, to state it again, one scholar writes, quote, many critics argue that the idea that God authorized the Israelites to conquer the people in the land and kill not only men but in some instances, women and children. Many critics argue that that is immoral and therefore evidence that the Bible is not inspired, end quote. So this is another place, this is another issue in which we hear the devil hissing, hast God really said? Do you really believe that? Your relationship to your Bible is what's at stake here. That's what I'm gunning for. That's what I'm focused on. I want to knit you and your Bible together because then you'll be knit together with the Lord God of the heavens and the earth and his divine son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So was it ethical? Was it right? We're going to seek to answer that question, but let me just portray boldly before you again what they actually did when they went in the land. Deuteronomy 3, verses 5 through 8. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages, and we devoted them to destruction. As we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. 
So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Deuteronomy 3, 5 through 8. So that's what we're talking about. That's what we're asking about. Was that right? Was that ethical? People have problems with that. Do we have problems with that? To help you, to ground you, to establish you, to keep you attached to your Bible and so to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are four principles to help you in figuring this thing out. Principle number one, God is sovereign over the earth and gives land to whomever he wills. Right? God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the earth. He gives land to whomever he wills. I already told you, Debbie and I live on a postage stamp. One day they might take away our postage stamp and put us in another little place. <laughs> and there won't be any land that we can point to and say is ours, and that's all right. But God is sovereign over the earth and gives land to whom he wills. Where does the Bible teach that? It's important. Let me show you several passages. Psalm 115 and verse 3. I love this. Our God is in the heavens. Here's something important you need to know about him. He does whatever he pleases. He's God. That's what God does. And so if it pleases him to say, you, you're out of the land. You, you're in the land. He does what he pleases. He's God. He's in the heavens. Here's another one, Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. Psalm 135.6. Listen to the words of King Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel 4, verse 35. Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and declares, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does, according to his will, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, now get this, and none can stay his hand. When God moves his hand to do something, nobody can stop him. All of us together can't stop him. Nor say to him, what have you done? No one can look at the conquests and say, what, have they, what has God done? Is this ethical? Is this right? No, God owns the earth. He can give it to whom he wills. Paul gets more specific about land in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. He's preaching a sermon, and in his sermon, he says these words, from one man, Adam, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined their appointed times. When will you live? When are you born and when do you die? He determined that. And he determined the boundaries of their lands or their habitations. God determined I would be born on August 27, 1954. I was. God determined I shall die whenever that may be. It could be today. I will be. And he has determined all people in all nations, their appointed times, and the boundaries of their lands or the boundaries of their habitations. One more verse that I didn't put up there, added this to my manuscript later. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, 1. Again, the earth is the Lord's. Whose is it? Is the quiz. Whose is it? The Lord's. Everything in it? Yeah, and the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth is his. 
I have a truck. It's really not my truck. It's his truck. We have a house. It's not really our house. It's his house. The earth is the Lord's. Look at it. It's his. The fullness of it is his. So what are we seeing? God is sovereign over the earth and gives land to whom he wills. He may say at any time, and none may stay his hand, and none may ask a reckoning from him, what are you doing, God? He may say, you people, out, you people, in. God is sovereign over the earth and over land. Here's the second principle that helps us. God is sovereign over when people die, over when people die. Let's face it, in Israel's conquest of the land, people die. Men and women and children, they die. Is it right that God should cause them to die? Don't they deserve to live and God should leave them alone to live their lives? Doesn't God owe it to them that they should be able to live long and prosper? No. God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign, over when people die. And it was time for these Canaanites to die. It was time to purge them off of God's planet. It was time that God had determined from his de decree from all eternity, this was the time when they are to appear in his presence. This is the time when they are to be judged by him. This is the time. Where, where do we see that God is sovereign over when people die? Well, Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, see now that I I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. You say, no, that guy killed that guy, but God says, I'm sovereign over that. It's I. It is I. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Similar to none can stay his hand. Once I, once I purpose, this is your time to die. You're going to die. Once I purpose, you're going to be born then. You're, you're going to be born then, and your clock will start ticking. God is sovereign over when people die. Every death is timed exactly according to his decree. Here's a good summary verse for this point. Psalm 31, 15. My times are in your hand. That's such a good verse for all of us to ponder that I want you to say it aloud with me, please. Let's say it. Are you ready? Here we go. My times are in your hand. Did you say that to the Lord? Let's say it again. Make sure you're saying it to the Lord. This is devotional time. Here we, here we go. One, two, three. My times are in your hand. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven with me, with my life. When I live, how I live, when I die, my times are in your hands. So God is sovereign over the earth and gives it to whom he wills. And God is sovereign over when people die. And God was sovereign over the Canaanites. I want you out. I want you dead. God is over these things. If that doesn't sound right to you, if you're struggling with that, you need a way bigger view of God. See, one of the problems we have is we bring God down and we raise ourselves up so that there's almost not much difference. It's like he's sort of like one of us, but a little smarter. He's sort of like one of us, but he lives up somewhere in space. So he's a little different, but he's very much like us. There's even a, a popular song about that. How's it go? What, what, what if God is one of us? You know that song? Somewhere in that song, he's smoking his last cigarette. That's blasphemous. 
There's even a song about that. What, somebody's wondering, what if God, people really do believe God is basically like one of us. And they want to tell God what he can do and what he can't do and what he has to be like and so on. God is God, my friend. He is. He is there. He is sovereign over the earth and gives it to whom he will. He is sovereign over when people die. Here is a third principle that will help you. God is sovereign over the means by which people die. And God, in this case, chose Israel as his means. You're going to die unless you're alive when the Lord returns and then you'll be caught up in the clouds in the air and meet him there and ever be with the Lord. But chances are you're going to die. By what means? Will it be famine? Will it be sword? Will it, will it be, will I die of thirst? Will the bus run over me? By what means will I die? Will it be cancer? Will it be a heart attack? Will it be a stroke? By what means will I die? God is sovereign over the means by which people die. And in this case, God chose Israel as his means. In other words, this is not unethical, what happened here. It is not that Israeli generals said to each other, I'm bored. Are you bored? Yeah, we're bored. Let's start a war. And there's good money in war. Isn't that the truth? There, there's, there's good money in war. Let's start a war. We'll have lots of funds flowing in if we get a good, let's get a good, that's not what happened at all. They were reluctant. Later in the chapter, God's like, go in and take the land. I don't know. We better send in some spies first. And the spies brought back a good report and they were still like, no, we can't go in there. We're not going in that land. Would you bring us out here to kill us? So it's not like they got the idea, these people, let's invade them, kill everybody, and take all their stuff. No, it was a matter of obedience for Israel. God said, I want you. You are my chosen means. I want you to go in there and kill all those people for me. Obey my command. Do you see anything unethical yet? Do you see anything about which you need to defend God, for which you need to defend God? God is sovereign over the means, and the means he had chosen was Israel. Let's move on. A fourth principle that will help you with all this. And God is sovereign over the reasons why people die. In other words, why was it time for them to die? Why did they have to die now? What was the reason that it was time? Why did God want to wipe these nations off the face of the earth? Didn't those, again, didn't those Canaanites deserve to live a nice long life? What kind of a God would make people die prematurely and early and young like that? What, what, what is this? Simple answer is, the reason why God removed these Canaanites, God removed these Canaanites because of the horrible extent of their evil. The text is going to tell us about that. Because of the abominations which they were committing in the land, God was cleaning up his planet. It's his planet. He was doing some housekeeping. Where do you see that? Well, let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Here we are in Leviticus looking forward to the conquest, talking about the coming conquest that we find in Deuteronomy and later in Joshua. And here we are in Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. They just come out of Egypt, where you lived. 
and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So we get a hint here. Why is God removing those people? Because of the things they do. Because of their statues, because statutes, because of their ethics, because of what they believe is right and wrong. And God is saying, don't you be like them. It gets more specific when we go to Leviticus chapter 18. Oh, by the way, so right after that, 18, 1 through 3, then there's a whole list of, well, what do they do? And it's sexual sin after sexual sin after sexual sin after sexual sin. That's usually where humans end up when things are getting really bad. It's sexual sin. Excesses of violations of God's will for the expression of human sexuality. That's where things go when it's getting really bad. And so at the end of that long list of sexual sins, then he throws this one in. This is noteworthy. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Don't offer your children to Moloch, child sacrifice, killing kids, mutilating children. Throughout human history, when things get really evil, when the demons get really revved up and all excited, people start killing children and mutilating children. Let the reader take note. One popular political commentator, and I'm not commenting for him or for against him. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm trying hard not to make any political statement, but I'm just going to quote him on something in a speech that recently got him fired from Fox News. A guy named Tucker called this whole thing of mutilating children the Aztec principle. He said, that's an Aztec principle. We're going to do one up on Tucker, and I think he believed this one as well. It's a demonic principle killing babies and cutting up children. It's demonic. And they were offering their children to Moloch. That was their version. We have our own. And he goes on, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Please don't let any revisionist scholars fool you. There was no uncertainty whatsoever about what that means. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to any animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Maybe part of the plus, LGBTQ plus. What's the plus? I suggested last week it's the children. Maybe it's also animals. The things they don't want to name, but they're hinting to us. There's more out there. Maybe it's that. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for... By all these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. God personifies the land and says the land had to vomit. That's why. You know when you vomit is when you eat something rotten. 
and your stomach says, oh no, that won't be good for you. We're gonna get rid of that. And you, you vomit. The land had to vomit. That's why it was time for these people to go. Again, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 12, when you come into the land that your Lord, your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Leviticus 18, 9 through 12. That's why. Our sovereign God said, enough of that. You know, not many sins in the Bible are called abominations. They're sins, they're violations of God's will, but only some, the worst, yes, some sins are worse than others. Only some are called by God abominations. Like that's a sin, that's a sin, that's an abomination. And they were practicing abominations and that's why God determined to drive them out. Are any of you feeling, or any of you thinking, like maybe there's a word here for this nation? As an aside on our nation, so on Sunday night, we had a wonderful little event here at Cornerstone. It was a Sunday night summer kids ministry launch. There was a bouncy house and face painting and all kinds of cool things going on. And Debbie and I were invited, so we came. And the idea was bring your own meal, so we did. We stopped at KFC. Now, for, for no reason whatsoever, we, we rarely go to KFC. I like their chicken just fine, but we just don't happen to go there much. I'd probably go to Chick-fil-A if I want chicken, right? <laughs> Stay in the team there. But uh, so, so we go to KFC and we pick up our chicken and I'm just telling you, there's no reason, well, there is a reason. I never drink soda. I don't want it. I don't want the calorie. So I got, so all they had was, so, so I got decaf Pepsi. I have to drink Pepsi. Anyway, so we came over here with our chicken and I had my decaf Pepsi and sat down out here in the yard, some chairs, and I'm starting to eat the chicken and drink my Pepsi. And one of you, one of the young men from the church, your son says to me, Pastor Steve, look at your cup. There he is. He's sitting right there behind some, I can just, there you are. He says, look at your cup. And I looked at my cup and it looked like hell. It, it looked like devilish colors and intense, and it had the word Diablo, which is, which is Spanish for devil. And then I, I looked at the smaller print, and it said something about Lilith. And I know a little bit about Lilith. And what this whole thing is, there's a new video game, Diablo 4, and, and, and they have teamed up with them to do Diablo 4, and it's about the devil, and it's about this uh, godless demonic woman Lilith and I'm holding it in my hand and drinking it out, out of it and he pointed out to me and I was like oh <laughs> but then now don't fire me for this but then but I was thirsty so I picked it back up and I drank some more but then I put it back down and didn't drink anymore so now it's Target, Coles, Bud Light, Dodgers and KFC 
Just please tell me it's not going to be Chick-fil-A next. I know there's this news story about them doing DEI now, diversity, equity, and inclusivity. All right, maybe they're just, you know, doing it so it looks like we're doing it, but they're not really, I don't know. But notice the reason why God said, you, your time is done. You, I want you to kill them and usher them into my presence. You are my means. The reason why is because of their evil and because of their abominations that they committed in the land. This is an aside. Let's do it. So I want you to notice here, all sins are not created equal. Put that another way. Some sins are worse than other sins. Now, we have evangelicals lining up to tell us, no, man, their sins, our sins are just as bad as their sins. No sin is worse than any one other sin. Then why does God call certain sins abominable? When God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were lots of other cities. Were there any sinners in those cities? Yes. Why did he not also destroy those cities? Because those sinners weren't like these sinners. Jesus says to the Pharisees of his day who are committing such an ultimate sin, they're looking in the face of the Lord of glory and saying, he's Beelzebub, he's got demons. And Christ says, it'll be more tolerable for you on the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. More tolerable means there's worse judgment and lesser judgment because there's worse sins and lesser sins. You can't tell me that the sin of murder is just equivalent with the sin of knitting not to the glory of God and you knit your way to hell. Now, not all sins are created equal. So don't believe these evangelicals who are struggling really hard to make us look good and to work on our PR campaign before the eyes of the world. And, oh, those, those sinners over there, we're, we're no different. We're the same as them. Not, what they're doing is no worse than anything we're doing. We're not judgmental. We just want to love, and we do want to love them and share Christ with them. But please don't believe the lie, the myth, that all sins are created equal. End of the aside. Back to, what was the name of this last point? Uh, now my pages are sticking together. <laughs> God is sovereign over the reasons people die. And that is why God had determined that it was, this would be a great sermon title, Curtains for the Canaanites. Or to do the Bugs Bunny iteration, when Bugs was a gangster, and he's talking to another gangster, Rocky, and he says, it's Coitons for you, Rocky. It's Coitons. How many of you remember that? Oh, I love you people. God is sovereign over the means by which people die, and God is sovereign over the reasons why people die. So let me read all four points we've made to justify God, doing apologetics for God in the words of conquest. One, God is sovereign over the earth. He gives land to whom he will. Two, God is sovereign over when people die. It was time for those people to die. Three, God is sovereign over the means by which people die, and God chose Israel as his means. Four, God is sovereign over the reasons why people die, and the reasons were the extent of the abominations of these people, and so God sent in Israel to clean up his land. Four closing words of exhortation. Number one, please keep your Bible. Please don't let anybody 
twist things and hoodwink you and make you think, ooh, Bible, maybe I shouldn't do Bible because there's this unjust thing going on in there. Ooh, how could you believe in the God of the Old Testament? He's the same God as the God of the New Testament. He's Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody rob you of the word of God, of the gospel, of the Son of God, and of everlasting life. No, with good reasons, the God of the universe, the sovereign God, did what he did in the conquest days of Israel. Cling to the Bible, keep to the Lord Jesus Christ, hold on to the gospel, believe until your dying breath, and spend eternity in heaven and not in hell. Please keep the word of God. By the way, I can't resist a pause. So probably the second largest church in these United States right now is in Atlanta, Georgia. They claim they've got about 40,000 people worshiping in one of their seven campuses on a given Sunday. And the senior pastor is a guy named Andy Stanley. And Andy Stanley has come out in a very public way recently and said, we need to get unhitched from the Old Testament. You've heard me mention this before, some of you. We need to get unhitched from the Old Testament. And my response is, you all need to get unhitched from Andy Stanley. That man is bad news. You don't want to get unhitched from the Old Testament. What he's saying is there's stuff back there that's embarrassing. There's stuff back there that's hard to explain. There's stuff back there that'll turn people away from the gospel. So for the cause of the gospel, let's throw away our Old Testament. My question is, why does he still have anybody in his church? 40,000 people. There's a lot of good little Bible-believing churches all around Atlanta that could use an influx of some of those people. It's what happens when you're fed not even milk, pablum instead of meat. Keep your Bible. Number two, man, if you learn anything from this sermon, you ought to learn this one. Please bow before God's sovereignty. Oh, bow before God's sovereignty. sovereignty. He is king of kings and Lord of lords, and you bow and bless him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you say, I said this earlier, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, your will in my life. I bow before God's sovereignty. Some of you are maybe not Christians and we're glad you're here. And part of what's happening today is we're, we're helping you count the cost and understand if I become a believer, you're probably already thinking, this, if I become a believer, I get that book, don't I? Hmm, I wonder what's in that book. Please tell me ahead of time. Help me count the cost. Don't hide from me and don't bait and switch me. Don't later reveal something and I'll be like, why didn't you tell me that's in there? Please show me right now, what are the hard parts? I'm attempting to show you who are not in Christ yet, what are some of the hard parts? Here's one of the, the major hard parts in the whole Old Testament. And here's how you should think about that hard part. You should bow before God's sovereignty. If you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he will become your God and your King. You will bow the knee and confess, Jesus Christ is my Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you'll live like he's Lord. Jesus said to some of his people once, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't obey me? You'll seek to obey him because he's your Lord. Bow before God's sovereignty. Here's a third closing point, and wait for the land. That one makes no sense to you because I skipped the tail end of my sermon because I ran out of time, and it was about the land and the coming land and the future land. Wait for another day when I talk about waiting for the land. 
Finally, number four in closing, pray for our land. That's biblical to do that. That's in 1 Timothy. I exhort therefore, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercessions be made for kings and all who are in authority, that we may live a quiet and godly life on the earth. Pray for our land. Canaan vomited out the Canaanites and our evil seems to exceed theirs. I read where one guy said, we are doing things that would make a Canaanite, a progressive Canaanite blush. And we are. Pray that God would pour out the Holy Spirit. He is merciful and gracious. Pray that the gospel would run with Holy Spirit power. Pray for massive conversions and turnings. Pray for politicians who would honor and love the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to guide our nation based on principles and laws from his word. Pray for our land. So let's do that as we close. Would you bow with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy and the conquests. And we bow before you, not my will, but thine be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we pray that you would save sinners in this place today, that they would count the cost of what it's gonna mean of what will be in that book. And they'll accept that cost and say, I want Christ. Doesn't matter the cost. Lord, would you draw men and women and boys and girls to the Lord Jesus, that they may call upon you, Lord Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, please cancel out my death. Lord Jesus, please save me by your shed blood on Calvary's cross. Lord Jesus, please call me by your word and your spirit. Lord Jesus, please give me everlasting life. Father, we pray that you would draw sinners to the Savior. And we pray for our sad nation. We pray for our sorry land and ask that you would yet have mercy upon us. We pray that you would send the gospel in greater Holy Spirit power. We pray that you would raise up beautiful feet evangelists who will take the gospel hither and yon. We pray for the evangelistic efforts of our church. Oh Lord, be merciful to sinners and use us as a means of bringing them to everlasting life. And we pray, Father, that our nation could be one in which the word of God would be honored, the principles of it would be taught and enforced. And so, Father, have mercy upon our land. We pray for all in the name of the Lord Jesus, with thanksgiving, amen.